He scopes out the present, shakes out the past, and keeps an eye out on the future. This is the Racing with Bruno podcast. Now, from Lexington, Kentucky, here's Bruno DiGiulio. Well, good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, wherever you may be, whenever you may be listening. This is Bruno DiGiulio, and I'm going to ask you, first of all, bear with me today. Not feeling the greatest, so things may not come out of the mouth right, number one. Number two, I've got a great guest. We're going to talk about the state of the union of racing. We're going to address and talk about the issues that plague the game. And he's a great guest, known him a long time, sharp guy, and we will cover that. Third of all, I want to thank everyone that has sent their well wishes for my brother who had COVID-19 over the last three weeks. Thank you for myself and for Marco on your well wishes. He's doing a lot better. His fever's gone. Uh, he did not have problems with his lungs or his oxygen, uh, more body aches, fever, nausea. But he will be going back to work in the next two weeks. Thank you so much to everyone for thinking of us. Let's bring on Patrick Cummings. Pat, how you doing? Great. Thank you for uh, joining us. Hey, Bruno. Uh, good to be with you. We've known each other a long time, and um, you've been in this industry a long time, and I really enjoyed reading your tweets. Uh, you're part of the website. Um, tell, us, tell us about your website, uh, and tell us a little bit about it, and tell us what you're doing from your own words. So, yeah, so it's uh, racingthinktank.com, and it's the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, which was launched uh, in 2018 as essentially a non-profit think tank um, privately funded for horse racing. And the goal has been all along to advocate for positive change for really all of racing stakeholders, but operating under the fundamental belief that if you are making horse racing better for owners, which includes breeders, and the gamblers, the horse players themselves, you make racing better for everyone, right? The gamblers and the owners are the only ones who bring their money to the table, put it up, and, uh, and drive all the trickle down throughout the rest of the business. So uh, we need to be focused as an industry on making racing better for the gambler, better for the owner. And if we do that, we think we'll be in a better position uh, as a sport overall. And, and the... Advocacy effort, I, I have to tell you, it is fierce, it is constant, um, and frankly, I think it's needed more than ever uh, because, um, you know, we face so many dynamic challenges as a sport, and if we are not pushing in this business collectively together, we're getting it wrong, and there's too many people that are involved in this sport for us uh, one way or the other to uh, to let these things kind of waste away. We need to make them better. And you have been in racing, uh, as I mentioned. I've known you for at least 10 years. You've been involved yeah, longer, in the last What's that? We, we met, I remember the first time we met, which was um, at Del Mar in 04. Wow. The year Smarty Jones won the Derby. Wow. Uh, we met in Del Mar in the press box. 
And um, I remember I came up one day and and was clocking, uh, not clocking, you were clocking, but, um, and I observed and and watched you doing your thing. So, I mean, that was, that was a learning experience for me, but uh, I've been involved in the game in some shape or form, um, some paid shape or form, I guess you could say since 1999 um, and was doing uh, the backup race calling at parks. And that was uh, tremendously fun. And I did that on and off for 10 years, but uh, really pivoted into the racing business full time in 2011. And, uh, you know, it's taken me around the world. Uh, I care about it tremendously and have followed it uh, religiously since childhood. And, you know, I think we're, we're just generally unhappy with the state of affairs and need to find ways to make improvements to make the game better for everybody. And your resume falls uh, really, uh, everything just really falls in your lap because of your resume. You're a former executive with the Hong Kong Jockey Club. Uh, you were uh, with uh, Trackus, uh, the racing technology and data provider. You've dealt with the racing game internationally and here in the United States. You've been an owner. Uh, so... You've almost done just about everything in this game. And I what really wanted to talk to you about is about some of these issues that we have in the game. Now, I know that on your site, RacingThinkTank.com, you brought up three different issues with racing. One was state racing commissions. Two was... Uh, most racetracks are owned by entities and individual entities. And three, racing's own self-created organizations have failed uh, to adequately address these concerns. Can you go through each one and we can go through from our experiences and talk to the, everybody out there about what is the problem and how can we fix it? So we published a paper in January that was called American Racing's Sustainable Future. And we tried to identify kind of three fundamental base issues with the sport and then some solutions that we think could be involved in making racing a more sustainable overall uh, industry and, and sport. Now, as you mentioned, the, the, the focus really on, in terms of the issues, one being that the commissions themselves, um, they're really just politically appointed bodies. Um, there is not a lot of racing knowledge. There is some, uh, but they are political entities. Uh, they don't value the rules and a standardization of rules from state to state. They tend to focus very much uh, individually on what they do and how they operate. They don't focus on transparency or how to make racing more competitive. And, you know, we, we've looked at... Uh, Gosh, you know, there are some, some subsets within them, but there was one state that uh, in, in the last 33 commission meetings, there had not been a single dissenting vote on any topic. That was in Ohio. And everyone agreed on every proposition, everything. And it's, look, it's very difficult in our in our world to find people that agree on every single topic. 
let alone one that can produce some divisiveness, such as things that are tied to and related to horse racing. Um, how you do things on medication or improving this or that or the other. And I found it fascinating that, that the state of Ohio had gone basically three full years with uh, approving everything. And it's not to say they were doing something wrong, but it was to say clearly there isn't a critical eye that is being cast on the sport. And our belief is in order for racing to improve, regulators need to be more activist as opposed to pacifists. And the more active you can be in the regulation of the sport, the better you will make it. Uh, it's going to come with some fights. It's going to come with, uh, you know, there will be proverbial, and I do truly mean that, bloodshed. Um, but the, those are necessary to make the sport better over time. Uh, the second issue is that many of let's the racetracks uh, themselves second, are now... Pat. Yeah, hold on ahead. a second, Pat. Let's, let's, let's talk about this first issue. Number one, we need medication reform all the way across the board in the United States. Everybody, everybody get on the same playing level field, level playing field. That's not happening, is it? Uh, it's not. Um, there are some attempts, right? Um, but, uh, you know, we have not seen a, a wholesale, um, upgrade, uh, in these policies. And there have certainly been many attempts over the years, but if you were to go back to 1990 and the broadcast of the 1990 Kentucky Derby, it is on YouTube. And uh, it, it was uh, Sunday Silences year, I think it was, and it was a beautiful day. And no, I'm, not, I'm sorry, it wasn't Sunday Silences year. I'm, I'm actually forgetting what year it was. But uh, anyway, um, Dave Johnson and Al Michaels are at the top of the Churchill Grandstand talking about a new jockey club study that had just been released that talked about the um, that, that Lasix was a performance enhancing substance. Okay. 30 years ago. And here we no, are no, with the jockey club at the head of the table, still, you know, trying to get some sort of movement on this. And I think they actually do have some momentum. Um, frankly, Bruno, I'm benign to um, what we should do on a medication level. I just want the issue to be resolved and that we can actually move on because the industry has some tremendously vast deep problems with the business model, with uh, the way in which it's structured, with the oversight of integrity and all these different things. And horsemen's groups in particular love to just fight about this Lasix issue. And I, I just wish we would accept some, some degree of movement and move on because so many of the other problems are actually being um, ignored uh, over time. And, and what's interesting that you bring up you brought up the, 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 the medication. We can't get that across the board, across every state. Same thing. I mean, that, that's no surprise because we can't even come up with, with these racing commissions really going out of their way to make sure that all races are timed correctly, that all workouts are timed correctly, that there isn't any integrity issues within Clockers Booth or other places. We can't get them to do something as simple as that. How do we ever expect them to actually do anything more? Yeah, 
um, that really was the crux of, of an issue I, I raised last week, right, uh, as it related to timing of races. And, you know, it is a real kind of fundamental uh, issue that if you can't accurately time a horse race and you haven't been doing it appropriately uh, as technology has evolved and that you've kind of uh, evolved with the technology, if you can't do that, how can we expect the rest of these things to be solved? Um, it is a lot of these items are broken windows and we, I think, feel like the way we treat them is, oh, no, no, don't worry, it's just a broken window. Well, the whole house is full of broken windows, right? And so that leads to just a whole other plethora of problems. And to be fair, the conversations that I've been having and, and our organization has had in recent months is, is, is hearing from stakeholder groups to say, yeah, that's a concern, except, you know, we have to deal with this. And they, they look at LASIX or race dates. And now, of course, the latest thing, of course, is, is COVID and, and the policies related to it. And, and the problem is, I think we need to walk and chew gum at the same time. We need to multitask these problems as opposed to trying to pick them off one at a time. Uh, we're not showing that we're doing any of that particularly well. And... Uh, I, you know, it, it does lead to some real long-term sustainability questions about the business. Look, it's a great sport. I love it. I love the, the, the I've been involved in so many aspects of it. I've, I've hit some tremendously great bets. Um, I've been involved in ownership groups. I have so many friends that are related to the sport, but, you know, I, I truly do fear that we're walking into a, a situation that is like that that was uh, reflected in the film The Big Short and the book The Big Short. And, you know, I feel like we're kind of, you know, yelling um, that there are problems and we need to really seriously fix them uh, or else the, the future uh, of the business is in doubt. And, and that hasn't been happening. So we continue to try and draw attention to it. Well, I, as far as far as race timing, you know, back at Hollywood Park in the 80s and 90s, even up to the 2000s, they never had a turf course uh, timing system. And the, the head clocker was working in the afternoon timing races, and they had a guy with a flag, and he would drop the flag, and that's when the guy would start the timing, and they would put it into the system, and they'd go up on the board. Well, I mean, nobody knew about it. It was every race at Hollywood, all the major races over the years at Hollywood were hand timed. And I did it for Del Mar in 95 and 96. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if you have a problem with times, you have a backup clocker with a stopwatch in his hand to do the race and check the time. I, I I really don't understand how major tracks can't do that. Yeah. Um, we, um, I, I would like to think that the root of the, uh, the origin of the problem comes from um, the way in which we first introduced quote unquote electric timing or beam breaking technology years ago and just never evolving. 
um, because actually it still remains some of the most accurate race timing that exists, provided that the system is maintained appropriately and looked after well. I recently spoke to uh, an executive at one track who told me that basically they had replaced their timing systems in like 34 years previously and had never done anything different. And it had just a, a series of patches in it um, and, you know, if there was a, 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 a bad storm that came through, it would knock out, you know, 20% of the, uh, of the system. And, and it created all sorts of issues. I've witnessed myself one track in this country that maybe six to seven years ago, everything was still hand-timed, meaning, you know, the, the timer was watching the horses past the, the, the point that was, uh, involved in the sectional and they, they would hit a button and, and, and you would get kind of a close enough sentiment. It's just not good enough, right? This is a data-driven sport and times are used in so many things to show you and to differentiate between performances and, and, and identify quality. And without question, as someone who, who has clocked races forever knows, it's not how fast they went, it's how they went fast. In the morning, Absolutely more than ever. In the afternoon, it's not quite the same thing. And, uh, you know, the sport overall just seems to kind of fail time and time again to implement the newest technology and the latest innovation and bring it in. But, but there are high school track meets that have far more accurate timing than events that have tens of millions of dollars wagered on them in this country that are regulated by state governments that defies logic and the sport needs to improve or else it will hasten its demise. Now we thought when Trackus came in to the mix, we thought, okay, well now we're going to fix this. Now we're going to do it right. And you and I discussed it a lot, especially the mile, The mile race at Gulfstream, um, yep. that was a problem. And, you know, we're in no, in no way, shape, or form I'm picking on Trackus, but what happened there? Well, they, they were the first, and they, uh, they're still in place uh, in some tracks, and they do a tremendous job of showing the graphics at the bottom of the screen, and that's very helpful. And in order to be able to reflect where the horses are, they also collect times. And while I worked for them for four years, I certainly don't speak for the company any longer. Um, so I'm not coming in any official capacity. Um, but uh, Trackus is a victim in, in, in this too, in some ways. And uh, just like the current uh, timer at some tracks, which is a, a British company known as GMAX, uh, which has partnered with Equibase to provide some some times, and uh, you have to to feel a little bit for the technology companies. As strange as that kind of sounds, they are being asked to come into the American market and break their technology to fit it into this strange mold of here's how America times horse races, and. That is the horses run up to the point that is the published race distance from the finish and then the clock starts. And so you take these intricacies and the, the engineering that is behind some of these, um, these tracking companies and you kind of lay it out and, and say, well, you know, here's what we can do 
what what do you need from us? And we say, well, we want you to time the races, okay? Um, but we, we, we only, okay, this race isn't a mile, but it says it's a mile in the program. It's not a mile, or it's not seven and a half furlongs. You know, it's going to be seven and a half furlongs. It's going to have 300 feet of run-up. Um, and I'm actually simplifying this situation here, Bruno, because normally what happens is, say, it's seven and a half furlongs, and then the tracking company said, no, it's not. It's seven and a half furlongs and 300 feet. Well, no, we got the, the run-up recorded as 180 feet. Well, when did you record that? 1982. Yeah, well, it's wrong. So, so we brought out a, uh, a surveying company, and they, they said this is 300 feet. Okay, all right, fine. I guess you're right. Um, horses may run 300 feet before the clock is ever turned on. Well, and that race is neither seven and a half furlongs. That's a football. Yeah. Right. And 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 horses um, pick up speed to where that is going to affect the opening quarter. You affect the opening quarter, it affects the final time. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Um, uh, you, you know, you you basically end up tricking the customers uh, into thinking that something is fast or slow unless they have really good insight as to what the run-up was. And look, you know, tracks do report some of this data, right? So, so they, they do say what it is, but inaccuracies abound. Um, and you, you never, um, look, these problems aren't solved. So, so you start to say, well, how could we get more accurate timing with these technology uh, providers which are in place? And the answer is that there is a pretty clear answer to this, Bruno. Uh, first off, you start timing when the gate opens. And in other countries where both GMAX is and where Trackus is, um, the timers are connected to a device that will uh, is tied in with the, uh, the starter's mechanism. So when the starter presses the button to open the gate, it sends a, a pulse to the system and says start timing. And you would get more accurate readings from the gate. Where it stands hold, right hold now on, with these devices. Right yeah. yeah, but hold on a second there. Stay right there. For example, at Santa Anita, when they run the mile and an eighth on the turf with the dogs down, with no rails, I used to time from the time the gate opened to the wire. And I would consistently get 1.2 seconds faster than what it was on the board. Later, I found out that when the starter pushes that button, there is a 1.2 second differential for that pulse to go through, the gates open, and the horses have come out. So now you had, and I remember, I used to think, God, you know, I got this race a whole second faster. But when I found it to be 1.1 to 1.2 difference, I knew there was something at play. So, yes, you're right, but then you would have to include that differential of that time pulse going through and opening the gates, the stalls of the gate. So, I think the technology has increased and, and is better, but regardless, if we started accurately timing horse races, the first quarter in every race would look slower. Okay, but yes. there is a... There is a, a um, 
there is one other step that could be done uh, that I think would greatly help. And that is if, if our sport began reporting the accurate distance that the horses are actually racing. Because when you have a seven and a half furlong race or, or, or a mile at Del Mar, a mile at Del Mar is like a 200 <laughs> foot run. Yeah. Okay. Five seconds. Like anyone can see it. It's, it's exactly. It's a, it's a one mile course. The gate should be right at the finish line. It's not. That portion of the race, go back and watch the Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile when it was run at Del Mar. Sharp Azteca and Battle of Midway would have been in an absolute head-bobbing photo if the race had actually been run for one mile from the gate break until the, 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 the point that was one mile from the start of the race. Battle of Midway won the last 200 feet. Okay. The, the solution here is... From the 16th pole. The gate is placed about yeah. 30 feet from the 16th pole. So the solution to this that some people like to, to turn their heads up at and their nose up at it and, and think of it, it sounds kind of uh, un-American. The solution is the metric system. Okay. The solution is that instead of running a six furlong race, this race will be run at 1,207 meters. And it's a way to increase accuracy in reporting exactly how far a race is run. They, they ran a stake at, at, at uh, uh, Saratoga last weekend. It was an overnight stake, the Lubash. And um, no, it wasn't. Yeah, well, Lubash. Yeah, I guess it was. Um, there was a mile and a 16th or mile and an eighth. And, you know, the horses ran, I don't know, maybe 150 feet before the clock started in races at a mile and three-eighths at Saratoga with a, a, a big run-up. Um, the race might actually be a mile and seven-sixteenths with 30 feet of run-up, hypothetically, to the start of a mile and seven-sixteenths race, but it's reported as a mile and three-eighths. Well, a mile and three-eighths is roughly 2,218 meters, Okay. Why are we accurately reporting that those horses ran 2,300 or 2,350 meters? If you instituted this change, it would take like a month for people to realize the difference. It would take a month. Well, if you started let, reporting let me, slower let me, quarter mile times. I hope you don't mind me pouring a little cold water on this because... I come across a lot to a lot of staunch stubbornness from handicappers. Most handicappers want to tell you how much they know, but they have no idea what a run-up is. Um, let's talk about it from my perspective of what I do in the morning. Everybody looks at gateworks from track to track to track all the same. Well, at Saratoga on the Oklahoma, you have to time it from the gate because they start in a hole. There is no runner. You go to the main. You have to wait till the 16th, uh, to the six and a half pole, the clock from there and bring them around while the clockers wait to the three quarter pole, which is not even an eighth of a mile, and clock and at 13. So then you go to Del Mar, they're starting to shoot, there's no run up. You go to Santa Anita, there's a 72 foot run up in the morning out of the gate. So most horse players don't know, don't care, 
but they'll still tell you how much they know. So it, 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 in a lot of ways, you could, do, you could talk to your blue in the face to tell them that that's not really a seven for a long race. It's like people don't know the difference between the beer course at Keeneland from a seven-eighths of a mile race. They don't know the difference. Yeah. Yeah. One is at about distance. Um, so, so, no, I mean, I, I get it. And, and you'll still find uh, people who bet football who don't understand uh, what, what user is not holding. Um, it, it doesn't stop them from betting football, right? Um, there is no test you need to pass to put your money through the virtual windows that exist today. Um, however, but also there's ego is, involved there too sometimes because I get guys push back at me if I'm trying to tell them that the information that they're getting on a horse is wrong. You get pushback instead of saying, oh, you know, I didn't know that. I'm getting this. People want to believe what's being put in there as complete, total gospel. And as you mentioned, even in race timing, which should be absolutely 150% correct, it's not. Yeah. And, and, uh, the, uh, and I've had this issue with the workouts for years, that we put these officially published works next to or adjacent to some undisputed facts about horse racing. So right below the past performance line where we know this was the day and the race and the race number and the course condition. And here was the purse of the race. And here's who ran first, second and third. And here were the odds. Those are undisputed facts about the race. Okay. Sometimes the in running position, there can be something that's off. Uh, the comment might not always be fully descriptive, but otherwise there's some facts there. When you put the workouts directly adjacent to a lot of fact, they become fact. They are believed to be kind of de facto accurate. Right. And we know that is not always the case. And that is the reason that individual um, workout services offer tremendous benefits to horse players, but it also serves as an impetus and it's why workout services should never go away. Even if racetracks started automating workouts, again, the time itself is, is not as much of a consequence as the way in which the horse did it, the way in which the horse normally does it and performs the qualitative factors are more important to the workout report than only the quantitative factors. If we can improve the quantitative inputs and, and get people to stop relying on what they're seeing today as a hundred percent fact, when we know the times vary from track to track, the run-ups vary based on rail settings and course conditions and, and where they can put the gate on and off and whatnot. And, and what timing device is being used at a particular track, and was there an error? If we can improve the quantitative inputs, uh, then everyone else's qualitative assessments of the race can can be better. Now, but Pat, we have how, a lot does, of uh, how does you know most American tracks are owned by individual entities? They operate casinos, gaming sites. How does that affect the game? Uh, it's been, you know, there's been a lot of consolidation. Um, so you have a couple large 
casino conglomerates that own racetracks now, so Churchill Downs, uh, Penn National Gaming, Boyd Gaming are big publicly traded. Um, you know, they're, they're integrated, uh, large, and in some cases international um, uh, corporations. In There still are a few, so to speak, independents out there, Tampa, Keeneland, Del Mar, um, there's a few, right? Um, and what we've seen in this, um, consolidation is natural, but, but the whole, the consolidation of racetrack ownership groups really happened as slot machines and casino licenses started coming into the, into the mix. So this is really about a, a 30 year 25-year consolidation that we've seen, um, and it does limit competition to some to some degree. Um, we believe that uh, you know horsemen are kind of viewed as being less important. Um, racetracks are willing to, or, or uh, corporate ownership looks at racetracks sometimes as necessary evils, and they've done that as as t- for, for 20, 25 years. And, and seen this as a path to get their casino licenses. Um, now what we're starting to see is a push and, a, and a, a rising concern from a horseman standpoint that maybe they don't need the racetracks anymore to keep the casino licenses going. And can we start to see that eliminated over time? And that is something that Greyhound Racing is seeing happening. It's something that uh, threatens harness racing. And I will tell you straight up, I'm very bearish on the future of Florida horse racers. Um, I, you know, Florida's Constitution Revision Committee eliminated Greyhound Racing um, two years ago. Uh, that's uh, you know coming to fruition here in the very near future, uh, part of a wind down of Greyhound Racing in Florida. And I fear that the next time the Constitution Committee in Florida comes up, which will be in 2038, that thoroughbred racing and standard bread racing will be on the docket to be eliminated from play. And it will allow the same entities that held casino licenses to continue operating casinos. That's part of the law. But it will eliminate the animal uh, component of, of the licenses. Um, that's a fear. Uh, we see Pennsylvania trying to claw back the subsidies that have gone to horsemen and, and the cuts that the horsemen thought were promised them. So these sorts of things come into the equation. And, and look, this the second quarter results from Churchill Downs will be very interesting because almost their only real source of kind of meaningful revenue from a wagering standpoint is horse racing. Uh, horse racing has been very important to Churchill Downs in the second quarter, and uh, their results come out this week, so it'll be interesting. Now, when we talk about the uh, racetrack entities, let's talk about some of these boards, the NYRA, uh, well, not a board, but uh, uh, some of these um, entities that run these tracks. The NYRA, you have uh, the CHRB. Um, there's In Florida, there is no board, and which I believe creates a problem in itself in Florida. But, for example, with the NYRA, we have, there's a lot of board members that actually own horses and run a lot of their horses at their meets. 
I've always felt that if you're going to be a board member at a racetrack or at a at a in a circuit, isn't it a conflict of interest to actually own horses and run them at that same track or that same circuit? Yeah, so so racing walks a fine line, and this this kind of goes back to the commission topic as well, right? You want to have industry knowledge, but you uh, you need that that kind of specialty knowledge, and you want that expertise, but you don't want the conflicts of interest. And whether it is um, Toba uh, Breeders' Cup. Um, you know, which which I think it's worth noting that I think the Breeders' Cup has been the single most successful entity in horse racing in the last 30 years. I um, do agree. Almost yes. without question. Um, but, but conflicts of interest are almost impossible, right? So it's how do you operate and regulate um, and, and find ways to improve a business without conflicts of interest. So, so I mean, I, I have conflicts, right? My horses have raced. Uh, at different racetracks that might get uh, criticized by the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. They may race at tracks that are lauded by the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. Anyone could look at that and suggest that there's a conflict in some way, shape, or form. Um, there are friendships. There are longstanding professional relationships that are involved here, right? And not to mention, the uh, the ultimate conflict is what you bet. And, and people always want to relate to, well, you know, uh, show me their show me their wagering account, and I'll show you what their opinion is uh, on a DQ or a, um, a decision uh, related to a race or something. So, uh, conflicts of interest abound in in this in really pretty much any sport. The thing is that that you need a strong oversight entity. You need some element that is above it. And for horse racing as much as the commissions need to be regulating racing better, I think you really have to start to at ground level and ask about the stewards and, and, you know, having been in Hong Kong for three years, I, I had likened it to getting a PhD in racing administration. I mean, it absolutely is the most enlightening, inspiring observations that I've made in my professional career to, to sit there. And I sat in the stewards room for three years at the end of every race meeting. And, um, it is a, it is an eye opening experience to see how that is administered versus what we have here day in and day out American racing. And really part of my goal is that we should all be wanting the standards to be lifted and to elevate the overall standards of American horse racing to get to a much better level, uh, than where we are, um, Give us an now. example. Give us an example of the differences between the two. So, okay, uh, very simply, um, uh, and, and I'll use an American example to tell you what would have happened in Hong Kong. Um, race at Saratoga uh, this past weekend. Mom Talk Daddy is the horse. Apprentice Luis Cardenas is on board. This horse has run five and a half, six furlongs on the grass, now stretching out to a mile. And he was showing speed in those five and a half, six furlong races. So on paper, this horse looks like he's definitely going to be speed. Not only is he speed, but I mean, he basically runs off, right? 21 and change for the opening quarter. There was a timing malfunction for the second quarter, but it was still really fast. 
And this horse is like a 12 length lead going very fast uh, down the back stretch. And not only does he get caught, but I mean, he's just completely run over and he ends up tailed off. He went from being, I think, 14 in front to finishing 26 length last. And you look at that and you say, yeah, this horse is probably speed on paper. But did this horse really get the best opportunity to obtain the best possible placing? And in America, if the stewards ask the jockey about that, the public never knows. If, if the stewards talk to the jockey, bring him in to show him films, that's never really related to the public um, in any real degree. California does it a little bit. But in Hong Kong, there would have been a complete inquiry they would have brought the jockey in and said, what were your pre-race instructions? The trainer in, what were your pre-race instructions to the jockey? They would have um, asked questions and then reported back. You know, jockey Cardenas reported that, um, you know, Montauk, he asked Montauk Daddy to, uh, to show some early speed and he, he, he hustled him away from the gate and soon after, um, you know, Montauk Daddy took complete control of the bid according to the rider and uh, just ran off. And the jockey felt that if he would try to restrain him too hard, that the horse would uh, react to that ungenerously, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing nefarious here. This horse looks like he's speed on paper, right? Well, he's stretching out and he ran away with the jock. And it's an apprentice who was on board anyway. Mm-hmm. You need to report the full breadth of the incident to the public because there's going to be people that look at that and say, uh, they were, they were, he was just a rabbit for so and so. Uh, or he that's was, what this, I thought. this was a setup. Or, that's the way the race you know, shaped so, up. So, that's what I thought. So, but you need to, you need to expose, and I don't mean that again nefariously because it could from time to time expose something nefarious. But you need to expose all of these situations, bring the public into the loop, provide them more information, and, and prove to the public day in and day out that your sport is on the level. And if you do that, you will build the confidence of your retail customers, your ordinary customers, day in and day out. They will feel they're getting a fair shake for their money, a good investment, and they can proceed to participate in wagering with both fists. And if you don't put that environment together, if you don't question riders about their decisions, if you don't bring in trainers and ask them questions too, and put all of that on the record, again, it's a, it's another broken window. And these add up over time. And it's exactly what you guys have in your mission statement on, on your site, that racing public perception issues they they actually show you shows you the growing distance and connect and distance from connection with the people inside the game. They between yeah. the horse player and and the backstretch and the trainers and the jockey and the stewards, there's there there's no connection, is there? I think there used to be more of a connection. Um, I worked under Dick Hamilton, uh, who was a former Naira steward. Um, I worked under him uh, in the summer of 2001 in Saratoga, uh, which was tremendously enlightening. And and I really got a sense of what the respect was uh, years ago. 
um, in the connection. Uh, I think some places are better than others, but again, no one, the only people who should not want a greater connection between stewards and the adjudication of racing and uh, the public and information, the the only people who don't want that are the ones who are doing something wrong, right? Um, This should lift all of our collective uh, welfare together. The the sport as a whole is better if all of its stakeholders are are well looked after. And uh, I think, you know, the public deserves it of a regulated wagering event. When you play the races, Pat, and I know you're a handicapper and you love to play. Yeah. And, And I have this issue, too. Sometimes I can't separate what we were just talking about from actually just handicapping straight out. To me, there's no longer a way for me to just to open up rate past performances and handicap. Respond to that. Um, listen, I, I handicap every Hong Kong card, and uh, I find myself looking at not just the free past performances they put out, but all of the information on their website the veterinary reports, the um, the workout information, the workout videos, um, the uh, like I said, the vet details are big. The barrier trials, which are basically like practice races, the gate workouts, essentially. Um, I find myself pulling all of that in there. I do look at a couple expert opinions. I look at the speed map, which is like a pace projector. Um, I find myself considering a lot of different um, sources of free information that are provided by an entity that wants my dollar. I don't feel the same way about American racing. And um, I, I do believe that there are people who will look, again, it's kind of qualitative versus quantitative that will look at it and say, I need to handicap the people as much as I need to handicap the horses. And I think that, um, you know, that, that it becomes troublesome when you are looking more for maybe signs of nefarious behavior to then determine how you're going to approach uh, a wagering event. That is highly unsustainable behavior. I'll give you an example of that. And, I, it's not about, re- you know, for example, when you're looking at Saratoga, the first thing I do is I see where Jose and Irad Ortiz are riding and for whom. And then I go through and see where Jose and Irad, who did Jose and Irad rode in that race last time. And yeah. knowing a little bit about jock agents and how, for example, at Gulfstream, if Irad rode a horse last, let's say he rode for you last time out, Pat, and today he wants to ride for me, but he likes your horse and he wants to keep it, they would put Saez on, or they would put a specific rider on that horse, and Irad would ride for me. He would win for me. You'd run third, fourth, or fifth. Then all of a sudden, Irad comes back riding for you, and you win. Yeah. So I found it that, okay... I I understand that game. I saw that happen in California. So now I'm going to weigh this um, and and put that in my handicapping. 
in, in New York, you have to do that. Where are Jose's ending up? Why is Jose off and he uh, you've got Lascano on or somebody else on and he's riding for Dunk. Why is he not riding here? You have to do that. And it came across the other day when a horse named Turbo Driver, uh, Turbo Driven, I think it was, or Mike Maker, ended up going off at 17 or 18 to 1. When does IRET go off at 17, 19 to 1? Well, because the horse had been, been beaten by 40-something lengths in the last two starts. I looked at it, and I'm like, why is IRET on here? So yeah. it wasn't a, you know, a fantastic handicapping job. I just went with the jock to climb it on board. And sure enough, and the that, happens, that happens in a lot of places too, though. And, and it does come into the equation in Hong Kong betting where you, you ask, where did Joe Marrero, who, who's he riding and why, and Zach Hurt and why? And the answers don't always, you know, they're not written in stone. You, you don't see them in the form. But um, this goes back to the basics of, of stewards reporting. You need to help your customers understand day in and day out the decisions that are made within the race. And you need to prove that you are looking out for the best interest of your customers. We don't have wagering customers. We don't have races. So that is what should be driving the base consideration of all of these jurisdictions in, in lifting the collective standards to, to promote integrity um, at, 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 to the excess and right now, we have the actual opposite of that. We have very, very few integrity standards that are almost exclusively limited to doping control. And there are questions about, about that, um, that, that that plenty of people have anyway. So I, I fear as though we are losing customers because of the lack of these, uh, these checks and balances, essentially, on, uh, on participants. And when you, when you don't have them, conspiracy theories then kind of easily run amok and you can think you are totally justified in suggesting x or y or z and there may be nothing to it but because you uh, you don't have jurisdictions that are actively looking out for customers um and and, and putting these reports together and and really fine tooth combing the actual races themselves uh, it leads to problems and to prove your point, I've always believed that the horse player, he's he's the low man on the totem pole when it comes down to Stewart Center. The greatest example was when Byron wasn't taken down in the Pacific, in the uh, Breeders' Cup Classic. Um, it's still a, it's still an example that is used and and one that uh, I, I understand exactly why it's used. Uh, but whenever anybody sees someone taken down for an incident at the gate, they, they basically will look back and say, well, Byron did it worse. And, exactly. um, and it, uh, look, it, it is a very legitimate uh, gripe to continue to have because, um, look, as, as it relates, we're, we're in favor of the Category 1 rules um, when it relates to stewarding. I highlight time and time again examples of bad rules. Um, and you know, uh, you know, it, it, it is rife across the sport. Okay. There is no, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I do think the sport could be better. I do feel sorry for the stewards though, because they have been handed a rule set that is incredibly substandard. 
it's incredibly difficult to be consistent with the rules that our stewards are, are left to enforce day in and day out. The way they are written um, just breeds inconsistency. It's a terrible thing, and it's why we're advocating for the rules to be changed. And like, um, there was a, a de- demotion in Emerald Downs last week, which I think was probably a bad takedown. But man, the state of Washington has a tremendous rule set. Uh, the wording of the rules is better than almost everywhere else. Um, but, but you have some states like Ohio where a foul is a foul still. It doesn't have to have altered the finish. If, if a jockey does this in a race, it's a foul, and the stewards can make a demotion. Well, if I'm a customer and on my ADW, which looks the same every day, whether it's thistle down or emerald downs, it's, it's still the same looking screen, the numbers, everything's in the same place. But I may have potentially had a, a, a totally different experience in the way in which the race is adjudicated. This isn't balls and strikes. And that is where things get, get very um, uh, off base when people, when people say stewards call balls and strikes. They don't. Stewards determine, uh, you know, if, if – uh, a, a, something happened in the first inning if the wrong call was made. And then after the game, they go back and say, because this happened in the first inning, we're changing the result. That is not calling balls and strikes. And they are enabled to be inconsistent because the rules have allowed them to do so. So how do we fix that? We have to develop more, more consistent rule sets. Um, and, and I do need to run after this, Bruno, but, well, well uh, I have the, to ask you one quick question with that. Yeah. Did you have an opinion on the 2019 Kentucky Derby with maximum security? Yes. I believe the stewards made the correct decision based on the rules of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Um, they were justified in making that decision. I think the rules are bad. So did they make the right decision? Yes. Do I think they should continue to make decisions based on those rules? No. The rules should change. The rules need to evolve. Because the way the rules are written today in a lot of these states, a horse that wins a race by 220 lengths, 220 lengths, okay, can be demoted because of interference 14 miles from the finish line <laughs> that cost the 722nd place getter 721st place. <laughs> okay. Think of the best. Uh, that's a great point. And Patrick, tell us where you can, we can find you and tell us how we can help or even uh, contact you uh, or, even give, send some suggestions. Thanks, Bruno. It's uh, racingthinktank.com. You can hit us up, uh, hit me up on Twitter individually, Pat Cummings TIF, at Racing Ideas on Twitter, um, or you can email and, and contact us through the website again at racingthinktank.com. Thank you for coming on board. Pat Cummings. Thanks, Bruno. All the best. From Racing, <laughs> racing Think Tank. <laughs> that, that's a mouthful sometimes. I thank you for coming on board, and this is Racing with Bruno, and I've enjoyed this. I've been wanting to do it for a while. 
I wanted to talk a little bit about timing and workouts and, and, and things that, that when you open up uh, your past performances, you're not really privy to. You don't really uh, fully get on board and, and have that as a mindset when you're handicapping. And I'm hoping that Pat opened some eyes and some ears and you let that soak in. And anything that we can do to help make this game more accessible and more uh, enjoyable for you, that's what we're here for. I want to thank everybody again for joining us and go to racingwithbruno.com. I've got some great subscription packages. We've got Derby coming up. We've got the whole fall with Breeders' Cup. Get on board and save some money. I want to save you money. Have a good day. Get more from Bruno by going to racingwithbruno.com. This has been the Racing with Bruno podcast.